Man is filled with enmity against God and is blind to his eternal interests. His will is opposed to God's and the depravity of his heart causes him to forsake his own mercies. Nevertheless, he is still a responsible creature and God treats with him as such. As his moral governor, God requires obedience from him and in the case of his elect, he obtains it, not by physical compulsion, but by moral suasion, not by mere force, but by inclining them to free concurrence. He does not overwhelm by divine might, but declares, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love. Hosea 11.4 what has just been pointed out here receives striking illustration in the incident before us. When God's requirement was made to Naaman, it pleased him not. He was angry at the prophet and rebellious against the instructions given him. Go and wash in Jordan seven times was a definite test of obedience, calling for the surrender of his will unto the Lord. Everything was narrowed down to that one thing. Would he bow before and submit to the authoritative word of God? In like manner, every person who hears it is tested by the gospel today. The gospel is no mere invitation to be heeded or not as men please, and grossly dishonoring to God is it if we consider it only as such. The gospel is a divine proclamation demanding the throwing down of the weapons of our warfare against heaven. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30 And again we are told, And this is His commandment, that ye believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.23 the gospel is for faith obedience, Romans 1.5, and Christ is the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, Hebrews 5.9. To those that obey not the gospel, the Lord Jesus will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance, 2 Thessalonians 1.7 and 8. If men will not bow to Christ's scepter, they shall be made his footstool. It was this very obedience that Naaman was reluctant to render, so much so that he was on the point of returning to Syria unhealed. Yet that could not be. In the divine decree, he was marked out to be the recipient of God's sovereign grace. As yet, Naaman might be averse from receiving grace in the way of God's appointing, and the devil might put forth a supreme effort to retain his victim. But whatever be the devices of the human heart or the malice of his enemy, the counsel of the Lord must stand. When God has designs of mercy unto a soul, 
He sets in operation certain agencies which issue in the accomplishment of his purpose. The flesh may resist and Satan may oppose, but it stands written, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Psalm 110.3 That day had now arrived for Naaman, and speedily was this made manifest. It pleased God to exercise his power by moving the Syrian servants to remonstrate with him and by making effectual their expostulation. My father, they said, if the prophet had bade thee do some great thing, wouldst not thou have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean, then went he down and did as Elisha ordered. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. Second Kings 5.14 then went he down, that was something which he had to do, and until he did it there was no cleansing for him. The sinner is not passive in connection with God's blotting out his iniquities, but active. He has to repent, Acts 3.19, and believe in Christ, Acts 10.43, in order to obtain forgiveness of his sins. It was a voluntary act on the part of Naaman. Previously, he had been unwilling to comply with the divine demand, but the secret power of God had wrought in him by means of the pleading of his attendants, overcoming his reluctance. It was an act of self-abasement. He went down and dipped signifies three things. He descended from his chariot, he waded into the waters, he was submerged beneath them, and thus did he own his vileness before God. No less than seven times must he plunge into that dark stream, thereby acknowledging his total uncleanness. A person only slightly soiled may be cleansed by a single washing, but Naaman must dip seven times to make evident how great was his defilement. These seven times also intimated that God required complete submission to his will. Nothing short of full surrender to him is of any avail. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. It is of deep importance that we grasp the exact purport of this second clause, otherwise we shall miss one of the principal lines in this gospel picture. Note well then that it was not according to the pleading of his attendants, the last thing mentioned in the context. Had Naaman acted simply to please them, he might have dipped himself in Jordan seventy times and been no better off for it. Nor does it read, according to the saying of Elisha, for it looks infinitely higher than that. 
according to the saying of the man of God signifies, according to the declaration of God himself through his prophet. Naaman heeded the word of God and rendered faith obedience. Romans 1.5 to it. Repentance is not sufficient to procure cleansing. The sinner must also believe. And this is what Naaman now did. His heart laid hold of the divine promise. Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. He believed that shalt and acted upon it. Have you done similarly, my hearer? Has your faith definitely appropriated the gospel promise, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved? If not, you will never be saved until it has. Faith is the indispensable requirement, for without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. 2 Kings 5.14 Of course it did. It could not be otherwise, for he is faithful that promised. Hebrews 10.23 None has ever laid hold of a divine promise and found it fail him, and none ever will. That which has been spoken through the prophets and apostles is the word of him that cannot lie, Titus 1, 2. He cannot falsify his word. He cannot depart from it, alter it, or break it. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, 89. Forever, too, is it settled on earth. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Psalm 89.34 God has promised to receive, welcome, own, justify, preserve, and bring to heaven all who will take him at his simple word, who will rely upon it unconditionally and without reservation, setting to their seal that he is true. The warrant for us to believe lies in the promise itself, as it did for Naaman. The promise says, you may. The promise says, you must. The promise says, you are shut up to me. Galatians 3.23 And I, I say, Lord, I believe. Faith is the taking God at His word, His undeceiving and infallible word, and trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior. If you have not already done so, delay no longer, but trust Him now, and wash in that fountain which has been opened for sin and for uncleanness. Zechariah 13, 1 and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Let it be duly noted that 
There was no lengthy interval between the faith obedience of Naaman and his healing. In fact, no interval at all. There was no placing of him upon probation before his disease was removed. His cleansing was instantaneous. Nor was his cleansing partial and effected only by degrees. He was fully and perfectly healed there and then, so that not a single spot of his leprosy remained. And that is exactly what the glorious gospel of God announces and promises. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7 The moment a sinner claims Christ as his own, his perfect righteousness is placed to his account. The moment any sinner really takes God at his word and appropriates the gospel promise, he is, without having to wait for anything further to be done for him or in him, entitled to and fit for heaven, just as was the dying thief. If he be left here another hundred years, he may indeed enter into a fuller understanding of the riches of divine grace. But he will not become one iota fitter for glory, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet, not as not doing so, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 1.12 And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Verse 15 When a work of grace is wrought upon a person, it is soon made evident by him. Mark the radical and blessed transformation which had been produced in Naaman's heart as well as in his body. He might have hasted back at once to Syria, but he did not. Previously, he had turned his back upon Elisha in a rage, but now he saw his face in gratitude. Formerly, he had despised the waters of Israel, verse 12. Now he acknowledged the God of Israel. All was completely changed. The proud and haughty Syrian was humbled, trimming himself the prophet's servant. The bitterness of his legalistic heart, which had resented a way of deliverance that placed him on the same level as paupers, had received its death wound. The enmity of his carnal mind against God and his hatred of his prophet, together with his leprosy, were all left beneath Jordan's flood, and he emerged a new creature, cleansed and lowly in heart. No longer does he expect a prophet to seek him out and pay deference to him. Instead, he at once betook himself to Elisha and honored him as God's servant, a lovely figure of a saved sinner desiring fellowship with the people of God. Sixth, its sequel. 
Let us look more closely at the actions of the cleansed Nehemiah. First, he returned to the man of God, nor did he seek him in vain. This time he came forth in person, there being no longer any occasion to communicate through his servant. Second, Naaman was the first to speak, and he bore testimony to the true and living God. Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He had listened to no lectures on evidences of the divine existence, nor did he need to. Effectively is a soul taught when it is made partaker of saving grace. Naaman was as sure now as Elisha himself that Jehovah is God and he alone. Third, this testimony of Naaman's was not given in private to the prophet, but openly before all his company. Have you, my hearer, made public profession of your faith? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Romans 1.16 Does a like witness issue from your lips? Or are you attempting to be a secret disciple of His? 4. Naaman now wished to bestow a present on Elisha as an expression of his gratitude. Are you ministering to the temporal needs of God's servants? Yes, my hero. Where a work of divine grace has been wrought, its subject soon makes the same evident to those around him. One who has fully surrendered to God cannot hide the fact from his fellows, nor will he wish to. A new life within cannot but be made manifest in a new life without. When Zacchaeus was made a partaker of God's so great salvation, he gave half his goods to the poor and made fourfold restitution to those he had robbed. Luke 19.8 When Saul of Tarsus was converted, he at once said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And henceforth a walk of loving obedience unto him marked the grand transformation. No sooner was the Philippian jailer made savingly acquainted with Christ than he who had made fast in the stocks the feet of the sore beaten apostles washed their stripes and after being baptized brought them into his house and set meat before them. Acts 16 Is it thus with you? Does your everyday conduct testify what Christ has done for you? Or is your profession only like unto a leafy tree without any fruit on it? But he said, As the Lord liveth, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. 2 Kings 5.16 Naaman was not taught the freeness of God's grace, just as Joseph, type of Christ as the bread of life, 
gave orders for the sacks of his brethren to be filled with corn and their money to be returned and placed in their sacks. Genesis 42.25 When God gives to sinners, he gives freely. It was for a truly noble reason then that Elisha declined the blessing from Naaman's hand. He would not sully or compromise the blessed truth of divine grace. He would have Naaman return to Syria with this testimony that the God of Israel had taken nothing from him but his leprosy. He would have him go back and declare that his gold and silver were useless in dealing with one who gave all for nothing, things new and old. God delights in being the giver. If you wish to please him, continue coming before him as a receiver. Listen to David. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon his name. Psalm 116, 12 and 13. In other words, he would render to him by receiving more. By his response, Elisha showed Naaman that the servant of God looks upon the wealth of this world with holy contempt. Thomas Scott wrote, Gratitude to the Lord will dictate liberality to the instruments of his mercies, but different circumstances will render it necessary for them to adopt different measures. The man of God will never allow himself to covet anyone's gold or silver or apparel, but be content with daily bread and learn to trust for tomorrow. Yet sometimes he will understand that the proffered kindness is the Lord's method of supplying his necessities, that it will be fruit abounding to the benefit of the donor, and that there is a propriety in accepting it as a token of love. But at others, the gift will be looked on as a temptation, and he will perceive that the acceptance of it would degrade his character and office, dishonor God, and tend exceeding to the injury of the giver. In this case, he will decidedly refuse it. This is particularly to be adverted to in the case of the great when they first turn their thoughts to religious subjects. From knowledge of the world, they are apt to suspect all their inferiors of mercenary designs and, naturally, suppose that ministers are only carrying on a trade like other men, while the conduct of too many so-called confirms them in the sentiment. There is but one way of counteracting this prejudice, and that is by evidencing a disinterested spirit and not asking anything, and in some cases refusing to accept favors from them until they have attained a further establishment in the faith, and by always persevering in an indifference to every personal interest. Unquote. 
And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules' burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. Verse 17. Once the true God is known, verse 15, all false ones are repudiated. Observe carefully his be given and thy servant. He does not offer to purchase this soil, nor does he as captain of the host of Syria's victorious army demand it as a right. Grace had not taught him to be a recipient and conduct himself as a servant. Beautiful is it to see the purpose for which he wanted this earth. It was not from a superstitious veneration of the soil, but that he might honor God. This exhibits once more the great and grand change which had been wrought in Naaman. His chief concern now was to be a worshipper of the God of all grace, the God of Israel. And to this end, he requests permission to take home with him sufficient soil of the land of Israel to build an altar. And is not the application of this unto ourselves quite apparent? When a soul has tasted that the Lord is gracious, the spirit of worship possesses him, and he will reverently pour out his heart's adoration unto him. The order of truth we have been considering is deeply instructive. First we have a cleansed leper, a sinner saved by grace. Verse 14. Then an assured saint. I know. Verse 15. And now a voluntary worshipper. Verse 17. That is the unchanging order of Scripture. No one that ignores the cleansing blood of Christ or the washing of water by the Word, Ephesians 5.26, can obtain any access to the thrice holy God. And none who doubts his acceptance in the Beloved can offer unto the Father that praise and thanksgiving which are his due. And therefore believers are bidden to Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Hebrews 10.22 As we have passed from one detail to another, we have sought to make definite application unto ourselves. Let us do so here. Naaman was determined to erect an altar unto the Lord in his own land. Here are you the head of a household, and do you claim to be a Christian? Then suffer this question. Have you erected an altar in your home? Do you gather the family around you each day and conduct worship? If not, you have good reason to call into question the genuineness of your profession. If God has his due place in your heart, he will have it in your home. In this, the Lord pardon thy servant, 
that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord forgive thy servant in this thing. Verse 18. This presents a real difficulty, for as the verse reads, it quite mars the typical picture and seems utterly foreign to all that precedes. It is true that Naaman was a converted heathen, yet he had himself acknowledged that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So, however great his previous ignorance, he was now enlightened. His desire to erect an altar unto Jehovah would appear to quite preclude the idea that he should, in the next breath, suggest that he play the part of a temporizer and compromiser, and then presumptuously count on the Lord's forgiveness. One who is fully surrendered to the Lord makes no reservation. He cannot, for his requirement is, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And again, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And still more difficult is it for us to understand Elisha's go in peace. Verse 19, if he had just been asked to grant a dispensation for what Naaman himself evidently felt to be wrong. Is there then any legitimate method of removing this difficulty? Though he does not adopt it himself, Thomas Scott states that many learned men have sought to establish an alternative translation. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master went into the house of Remen to bow down himself there, that I bowed down myself there, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. We do not possess sufficient scholarship to be able to pass judgment on this rendition, but from what little we do know of the Hebrew verb, which has no present tense, it strikes us as likely. In such case, Naaman's words look backward, evidencing a quickened conscience, confessing a past offense, rather than forward and seeking a dispensation for a future sin. But if that translation be a cutting of the knot rather than an untying of it, then we must suppose that Elisha perceived that Naaman was convinced that the thing he anticipated was not right, and so instead of rebuking him, left that conviction to produce its proper effect, assured that in due course, when his faith and judgment matured, he would make a more decided stand against idolatry. Chapter 19 11th Miracle The eleventh miracle of Elisha is so closely connected and so intimately bound up with the tenth that it will scarcely be out of place for us to bring forward the final division of the foregoing 
and use it as the introduction to this one. Though we dwelt at more than customary length on the healing of Naaman, and pointed out much as we went along that was typical in connection with the same, yet there still remains several details of interest which deserve separate notice, and unto them we now turn. First, the cleansing of Naaman supplied a striking display of the sovereignty of God. This was emphasized by the Lord Jesus in his first public discourse in the synagogue at Nazareth, when he reminded his hearers, Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Luke 4.27 It is ever thus with him whose thoughts are so different from and whose ways are so high above ours that when acting in the freeness of his grace, he passes by others and singles out the most unlikely to be the recipients of his high favors. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 Second, the cleansing of Naaman afforded a blessed foreshadowment of the divine mercy reaching out unto the Gentiles. For Naaman was not an Israelite, but a Syrian. Nevertheless, he was made to learn the humbling lesson that if divine grace was to be extended to him, such grace proceeds from the God of Abraham. That was why he must wash in the Jordan. The waters of Abana and Farpar, Second Kings 5.12, were of no avail. He must wash in one of Israel's streams. This truth is written large across the pages of Holy Writ. The harlot of Jericho was to be spared when her city was destroyed, but it could only be by her heeding the instructions of the two Hebrew spies. The widow of Zarephath was preserved through the famine, but it was by receiving Elijah into her home. The Ninevites were delivered from impending wrath, but at the preaching of Jonah. The king of Babylon received a dream from God, but for its interpretation he must turn to Daniel. To the Samaritan adulteress, Christ declared, Salvation is of the Jews, John 4.22. Then let us heed the warning of Romans 11.18-25. Third, the cleansing of Naaman provided a full adumbration of the way of salvation, or what is required of the sinner in order to his cleansing. First, we have a picture of how fallen man appears in the eyes of the thrice holy God, a leper, one condemned by his law, a loathsome object, unfit for the divine presence, a menace to his fellows. Then we behold his self-righteousness and self-importance as he came expecting to purchase his healing and was angry at the prophet's refusal to show him deference. 
Next we learn of the demand made upon him. He must descend from his chariot and go and wash seven times in the Jordan. There must be the setting aside of his own thoughts and desires, the humbling of proud self, the acknowledgement of his total depravity, full surrender to God's authority and faith's laying hold of the promise and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Finally, we behold the immediate and complete transformation. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, with a corresponding change of heart and conduct toward Elisha and his God. They are passing from this most fascinating incident one further word on the particular waters into which Naaman was required to dip. It was not in the river Kishon, nor the pool of Bethesda, but the Jordan. Why? The answer to that question reveals the striking accuracy of our type. As leprosy, emblem of sin, was in question the curse must be witnessed to. Sin has called down the curse on the one against whom it has raised its defiant head. Genesis 3 The curse is God's judgment upon sin, and that judgment is death. It is this of which the Jordan ever speaks. It was not because its waters possessed any magical properties or healing virtues. The very name Jordan means judgment. Those who heeded our Lord's forerunner were baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Mark 1.5 Immersion beneath its waters was the acknowledgement that death was their due. Therefore did the Saviour allude to his death as a baptism. Luke 12.50 For at the cross he was overwhelmed by the judgments of God. Psalm 42.7 88.7 And when a sinner believes the gospel and appropriates Christ as his substitute, God regards him as having passed through his judgment of sin so that he can now say, I am crucified with Christ. And in his baptism as a believer, there is a symbolical showing forth of that fact. The miracle which is to now engage our attention is of quite another order, the differences between them being most striking. We will therefore consider first its contrast. The subject of the foregoing miracle was a heathen idolater. Now it is the prophet's own servant. The one sought unto the prophet for relief. The other pursued the relieved one and virtually demanded tribute from him. There we behold Elisha teaching Naaman the grand truth of the freeness of divine grace. Here we see Gehazi casting a dark cloud over the same. 
In the one, Naaman is represented as expressing deep gratitude for his recovery and urging the man of God to receive a present at his hands. In the other, the avaricious Gehazi is portrayed as coveting that which his master so nobly refused. There, it was a poor creature healed of his leprosy. Here, it is one being smitten with that dread disease. There, we behold the goodness of God acting in a way of mercy. Here, we see his severity acting in holy justice. The former closes with the recipient of divine grace, returning home as a devout worshiper. The latter ends with a pronouncement of God's curse on the transgressor and on his seed forever. Second, his subject. The one on whom the solemn miracle was wrought is Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. He has come before us several times previously, but nowhere was he seen to advantage. First, when the woman of Shunem sought unto the man of God on behalf of her dead son and cast herself at his feet, Gehazi came near to thrust her away. Chapter 4, 27 And his master bade him, Let her alone. Then the prophet instructed his servant to go before him and lay his staff upon the face of the child. Verse 29 Elisha could successfully smite the waters of Jordan with Elijah's mantle because the spirit of Elijah rested upon him. Chapter 2, verse 15 But being devoid of the spirit, the prophet's Staff was of no avail in the prayerless hands of Gehazi. Chapter 4.31 In 4.43 We behold his selfishness and unbelief. What, shall I set this before a hundred men? When Elisha was counting upon God to multiply the loaves. Thus his character and conduct is all of a piece and in keeping with his name, which significantly enough means denier. Third, its occasion. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my master hath spared Naaman the Syrian in not receiving at his hands that which he brought. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. 2 Kings 5.20 It will be remembered that before Naaman left Syria for the land of Samaria, that he provided himself with a costly treasure consisting of ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. Verse 5 No doubt a part of this was designed for traveling expenses for the retinue of servants who accompanied him. But the major portion of it he evidently intended to bestow upon his benefactor. But Elisha had firmly refused to receive anything. Verses 15 and 16 And so he was now returning home with his horses still laden with the treasure. 
This was more than the covetous heart of Gehazi could endure, and he determined to secure a portion of it for himself. The honor of Jehovah and the glory of his grace counted nothing with him. Every word in verse 20 repays careful attention. It opens not with the usual and, but the ominous but, intimating the solemn contrast between the two miracles. Gehazi is here termed not only the servant of Elisha, but of Elisha the man of God. The added words bring out the enormity of his sin. First, they call attention to the greatness of the privilege he had enjoyed being in close attendance on so pious a master. This rendered the more excuseless his wicked conduct, for it was not the act of an ignorant person, but of one well instructed in the ways of righteousness. Second, it emphasizes the enormity of his offense, for it reflected seriously on the official character of the one who employed him. The sins of those in the sacred office or of those associated with him therein are far graver than those of others. But as Gehazi had no concern for the glory of God, so he cared nothing for the reputation of Elisha. What has just been pointed out here definitely refutes one of the widespread delusions of our day, namely that it is their unfavorable surroundings which is responsible for the degenerate conduct of so many of the present generation. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, 
they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.